Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello there, listeners. After over two years of recording and 80 plus episodes, I am elated to announce that Enduro Bearings has agreed to become a supporter of the Cycling in Alignment podcast. This is a double win for you, the audience. You have the opportunity to demonstrate your support of the show by making a purchase on the website cycling.endurobearings.com and you get to save some dollars while you trick out your whip. Use the code Colby Podcast to receive a 35% discount on any of Enduro Bearings excellent products. That's Colby Podcast, which is all lowercase and all one word. This includes the excellent XD15 ceramic bottom bracket, which is guaranteed for life. That means it may outlive you because, well, it's inanimate. Enduro also makes headsets, derailleur pulleys, as well as bearings for just about everything that rotates on a bicycle. So use your digits to make the keyboard mudras and head over to cycling.endurobearings.com and upgrade your favorite ride now. And remember, the proper number of bicycles is always N plus one, so think ahead. Thanks for listening. Well, hello there, cycle knots, space monkeys, Ready to be shot in space like a space monkey. For this episode of Cycling and Alignment, I'm going to record some thoughts, some solo thoughts. I promise I'll get back to the good guests, but for now, we're on a solo binger. It seems to be what's happening. Then we'll go back to the guest list. As I record this, I'm driving up to do some skiing. It's January, almost February of 2023, and it is proper winter here in Colorado. One of the more wintry winters we've had in a while, which is a good thing for several reasons. For one, winter is a thing that should happen in Colorado. And when it happens, that makes me feel like nature is still working as it sort of should. I guess that's not really the right way to think about it. Nature will work as nature works. And all conversations about global warming and climate change aside, it's going to do what it's going to do. And we are but specks. Little specks of dust on top of this magnificent planet. It makes me think of a recent Peter Atia podcast where they were talking about the timing of the human race. And to get a concept of how long we've been on this planet what they did is they mapped out all of time on top of a regular calendar year so that we could put it into terms that we understood. And I thought this was a really interesting discussion. And as a plot spoiler, today's podcast is all about timing. In fact, the title will be Timing is Everything. So this is the perfect way to begin this conversation. I don't know who it was that came up with this model, but Peter and his guests were talking about it. And What they said was, imagine that the Big Bang or the start of the universe happened January 1st, and the completion of all time was December 31st of the same year. And they talked about how dinosaurs lasted, I think it was a month, like the month of October or something like that. And 
So if the big bang started January 1st, there's months and months and months that happened where no life began. Life started, I think, if I remember correctly, I'm probably going to butcher this a bit, but it was sometime in the fall, maybe late summer, like single cell life started. And humans, all of recorded human history occupied, I believe it was the last 27 seconds of the entire calendar year. So that's how little time we have been in the galaxy, which is kind of a cool concept to think about. 27 seconds out of an entire year, we've been around and recording things. That is recorded history, probably starting from the earliest cave drawings we found on planet Earth, wherever those might be. I don't happen to know at the moment. So that puts things into perspective for a bit. And when we think about timing and winter and seasons, that's one aspect of timing. So what I'd like to do is give us a contextual overview of the way I'm thinking about timing in my head currently. And then I'll relate that to your life, hopefully, and cycling in particular, because timing impacts everything, uh, hence the title, Timing is Everything. And it impacts our cycling lives and our athletic lives in many nuanced ways that I think are important to keep in mind, even in our daily lives and our daily patterns. So we're gonna think about our timing calendar as a dot surrounded by a circle or a sphere. We're thinking three-dimensionally. So this dot is in the center of the sphere and that is to say that the dot is equidistant from the sphere at all points. So the dot has an equal radius in any direction to the surface of the sphere. And we can call the sphere the circumferential area. That is the area on the edge of the sphere. And we're gonna begin in the center of the sphere at the dot, <clears throat> the zero point you might say, and then we're gonna work our way outwards. And at the beginning of this journey, we have timing in the most infinitesimal units. So nanoseconds, microseconds. At the very, very, very extreme point of the dot, beginning of the dot, we would have instant. It's the zero point. So it would be timing without time. Be the point, we'll say just at the smallest increment past which time stops. So at the very center, I imagine that time would stop because it's zero. There's no movement, there's no motion. And we might think about time as adding uh, a dimension to movement. Right? So we can move in three dimensions, say three planes, sagittal, frontal, and transverse. And when we add time, that adds the fourth dimension to, to those movements. Just as when you add time to force, you get power. Right? So timing is everything. Okay, so back to our center of our sphere. I know this is way out there for right now. Bear with me. I promise I'll bring it into more cycling stuff. Why we care. It's always got to be the thing. We have to bring philosophy to why we care. Because we just talked about philosophy and then we never get to the practical stuff. Then why have the conversation? So we go from nanoseconds or millisecond. I don't know what's smaller than a nanosecond. I'm sure there's a whole bunch of units smaller than that. 
in milliseconds and then seconds. And when we get to about one second or a handful of seconds, moving out from our sphere bit by bit, we think about being present versus living in the past versus living in the future. And this is an important marker to consider because it has big implications on our athletic frame of mind as well as our general lens on life. So that's one of our stopping points that I'm going to unpack on our journey about time. But I'm, for now, going to continue progressing outward through the circle so you get an overview of what the heck I'm talking about. And then we're going to rewind and go back from the center and unpack each of these units or stopping points on our journey, bus stops on our trip from A to B, our three-dimensional trip from A to B. So then we get to minutes. And in minutes, the part that I would like to speak about mostly is the ultradian rhythm. And the ultradian rhythm is a concept that I'm still learning quite a bit about. But like so many things that I learn about later in my life, probably 51 this year, so I'm definitely officially old. I start to glue pieces together. That is, I have a type of intelligence that allows me to assemble different concepts from different parts of knowledge and understanding and experiences from my own life. This is the cool part. I forget what this type of intelligence is called at the moment because I'm not that smart, but there's a name for it. In any case, when we're talking about minutes and ultradian rhythm, what we're talking about is a 90-minute cycle approximately, maybe 120 minute, depending on who you read and what you study. And we're going to talk about why that's important, specifically in the design of training programs and in the lengths of bicycle rides. I'm going to talk about why 90 minutes is a big deal and increments of 90 minutes. Also, why that ultradian rhythm is important in sleep, right? And why the 90-minute nap is different than the 20-minute nap and what it means when you're taking one or the other. Then we're going to move to hours. And when we talk about hours, we're talking about the circadian rhythm. And of course, the circadian rhythm is really the 24-hour cycle, which on our planet is governed by the rotation of the Earth and the appearance of the sun and the disappearance of the sun each evening. Hence, the cycle of light and dark and the rhythms of light that govern our many of our bodily functions, including our hormone cycles, our sleep cycles, our rest and recovery cycles. This is the most fundamental cycle that governs or dictates yin versus yang, right? Yin being rejuvenative or restorative or energy, energy multiplying. This is what happens primarily at night when you sleep, you multiply your energy. And then during the day, you got to do all the yang things and you divide. You divide your energy, you do the things, you accomplish the to-do list, you do the chores, you do the work, you make the podcasts, you ski the mountain, you eat the food, etc. Well, actually eating the food, preparing the food is yang, and then eating the food would be a form of yin. But anyway, so this circadian rhythm is one of the more fundamental 
tenets of how we live life. And when that rhythm is disregarded, it has severe consequences on our physiology. And this is really easy to see if you're fooling yourself and thinking that you sleep when you're dead, which is an expression I dislike almost as much as Watts is Watts or Watts are Watts. Uh, you'll, you'll end up paying the ticket down the road somehow. And maybe that's your choice. Maybe you're full of bravado and tough guy or tough gal energy. And that's, that's cool. That's your thing. You want to do that. Go knock yourself out. I'm not saying I'm wiser than you. I'm not saying I'm better than you. I'm just saying it's not my choice. And you, sometimes there are people who are fooling themselves and they get David Goggins syndrome or Jocko Willing syndrome. And you are not David Goggins in all likelihood. The statistical probability of you having the same fortitude as David Goggins or Jocko Willink is infinitesimally small. So unless you've been doing it your whole life, there's a good chance you're just trying to keep up with the Joneses or, in this case, the Willinks. And I'm not bagging on Jocko or David. These guys are inspirational humans, and they teach us a lot about what human beings can accomplish. However, I do think there's a big dark side to following those people too closely because they create a culture of yang and potentially a culture of not listening to your rhythms, your own timing. And timing is everything. Uh, the other place we can really see this is obvious just to make one more point on this before I keep expanding is you look at things like health statistics, um, mortality rates and disease rates for people who work night shifts in any field. And you can, it becomes really clear really quickly that the trends are not good. So stay up all night, sleep all day, and you are doing it backwards. I'm not saying no one can do this. Please don't make one of the fundamental flaws of logic, which is the instantial generalization. People do this all the time. I probably still do it, although I try to catch it. The instantial generalization is when you make the argument that because your 97-year-old grandma smokes four packs of cigarettes a day, that people are idiots when they say smoking is bad for you because she is proof that you can smoke four packs a day and be healthy for 97 years. And this is bullshit, obviously. Just because one grandma lived to be 97 and four, smoked four packs doesn't disprove all the evidence we have for smoking being one of the worst possible choices you can make. It, But if throttles me to see how many people make these instantial generalization logic flaws, rules. They disregard this rule all the time and they apply it at, at liberty, at libidum. Is that the right Latin term? Probably not. Whenever it suits them to make use of their argument or justify their line of thought. So that's that circadian rhythm. Then we move out to the lunar rhythm or the monthly rhythm. And, you know, superficially, we might think of this as being the domain of women, because obviously women have menstruation, which helps them stay in sync with a lunar cycle, a monthly cycle, right? And of course, that's true. I would point out that just about every man in the world, hopefully every man has one or more women who play a close role in their lives, whether it's their daughter, their wife, their mom, their sister, a good friend, etc., a worker, a coworker. 
So by extension, those rhythms will impact men. And choosing my words carefully here, because I'm not trying to say whatever you might be thinking. I'm also not concerned about pissing anyone off necessarily. I'm just stating facts. So these rhythms influence each other, but I will also point out, ooh, Hawk, whoa, Hawk almost flying in front of my car. Dude, don't fly in front of cars like that. Just go get your mouse. You can fly above us. You're so much cooler than we are. We're trapped here. You get to go wherever you want, 3D. So distracted by Hawk. Also, I would point out that men's lives, independent of their relationships or interactions with women or the energy of women, is also heavily influenced by the monthly rhythm. We're just not as conscious of it. We're not as tuned in by it or to it, but it's there, no question. And there are some people who would actually recommend that training rhythms have some acknowledgement to the lunar rhythm. That is the waxing and waning of the moon. Now, this is a pretty out there idea. No, no self-respecting cyclist would ever not do intervals when the wane, when the moon was waning, right? Well, this is something I've been considering and I haven't put it to practice yet, but I would imagine that for some athletes, there's probably something to this. So I'll leave it at that for now. I think the monthly rhythms play a big role. Uh, and I will also point out that monthly rhythms, of course, drive directly into annual rhythms and annual rhythms is exactly where we're at because I'm going skiing right now. I'm not riding my bike. That's because it is currently five degrees in Boulder Fahrenheit. I don't know what that is in Celsius. My, my conversion scale isn't that great. It's like minus 12 or something, but approximately it's really, really cold. Uh, probably too cold for most cycling, unless you've got a fat bike and the bar mitts and the whole shebang, which I've got some pretty warm clothes and a lot of Gore-Tex, but I don't quite have that level of stuff. So when we consider the annual rhythm, we can refer back to my podcast about orbits and being further in orbit from your goal versus being closer in the orbit, the rotational orbit, the imaginary metaphorical orbit towards your goal. That is when you orbit a sun or an energy source, and your goal is on the other side of that source, that is, i.e. it's months and months away, then you are training normally less sports specifically. And you are also training probably more of your weak points. And then as you get closer to your goal, you're most likely training towards more of your strengths or sharpening your strengths while maintaining the work you did on your weak points so that you can be a complete multidimensional rider that is metaphorically moving in all the planes of cycling, which for the record would be low cadence, high cadence, uh, low power with good recovery, high power with good ability to activate and share load share between glycolytic energy systems and aerobic energy systems, right? Be able to handle all types of riding. Not only are you a, an aerobic machine diesel, but you're also capable of multiple accelerations. Now, sprints, we have to treat as a special subject because that comes down to fiber type and you're either born with it or without it. And it's trainable for everybody to a certain point, but there's a pretty big ceiling there. So it sort of is what it is. We can all train our slow twitch fibers to be more efficient and we can probably convert to a lot of slow twitch, but getting those two type two Bs, that's a challenge. Uh, and some of us will hit a, a pretty solid ceiling there. 
also there's the muscle mass consideration anyway in the weeds so when we consider our annual timing this is how i think about it is this grand scale of orbit and what's appropriate exercise and this is a particularly important conversation for us right now i've been having a lot of discussions with my colleague zach at tmf coaching about how old school cycling and new school cycling have sort of this big clash going on and how a lot of tenants of old school cycling have been lost. And this comes at the expense of a lot of technical ability in the sport. Now I'm not championing old school shit. I'm not some curmudgeon who's like, everybody should still be on rim brakes and 25 C tires with 108 pounds of pressure. Um, that's how a curmudgeon talks in case you're wondering. I am a rollers curmudgeon. I think trainers are bullshit, even though I do my bike fitting on one. I'll unpack that more later, but uh, maybe probably in another episode. I'm not a curmudgeon. I'm not championing old school. So to quote KRS-One, I'm not old school and I'm not new school. I am all school, meaning I take the best of all worlds. Why would we not? So there are definitely valuable lessons in old school cycling. And I'm going to distill and present some of those aspects. And then there are, of course, amazing things that new school cycling brings us, like, you know, power meters. But those come at a price. And there's this concept called the unintended consequences of technology, which dominates our entire life. In case you haven't noticed this, then you are clueless. And I'm going to try not to get upset right now because I'm imagining someone who doesn't know what I'm talking about. And if you are that person, then I'm upset with you. Pay more attention and stop living unconsciously and being driven by your iPhone. So stop being manipulated by your technology in a way that is not constructive, because you most certainly are if you don't know what I'm talking about. Okay, stepping off the soapbox. So we're going to unpack some of those tenets of old school cycling that are useful and utilitarian. And, and just to give you a preview before I go into the more detailed aspect. Old school cycling used to have a much more annual rhythm. You used to take a month off or six weeks off or eight weeks off. And then you did three or four weeks of base riding or well, actually probably more like six to 12 weeks of base riding, depending on how overweight you were and how out of shape you were and the weather you had. And you just sat in your little chain ring for kilometers and kilometers on end and you developed suplex and smooth pedaling. You didn't ride the trainer, you rode outside in the winter. And this is one of the, the things about old school cycling is all suffering went in one box, which was called good. And that suffering could consist of your legs and lungs hurting or developing um, from the load of your training. It could also be filled with things like your balls falling asleep or your lady bits falling asleep or your shoulders hurting your neck hurting as you accommodated the bicycle independent of whether it was adjusted correctly, your toes hurting from toe clips, et cetera, et cetera. So we've gotten a lot more discerning about how that box of suffering is filled because we intelligently realize that that box is finite. All humans, no matter how badass you are, no matter how CrossFit games you think you are, or how many kettlebell swings you can do, everyone has a limited capacity for suffering. I will fight you to the death naked on this point. If you think otherwise, you're being a fool. Even Jocko has his limit. He's just way more badass than most of us. So therefore, 
it makes no sense to cleave some of that suffering into useless suffering, suffering that's not constructive towards your goal, assuming you are trying to go as fast as possible on a bicycle during bike races. Why would you make a ride a saddle that hurts? Why would you put your handlebars in a position that causes you pain? This makes no sense, right? Simple when you think about it. But then examine your own life and see if you can figure out areas in which you've made choices that have, we'll say, leaned on the ego to tolerate pain and discomfort, thinking that it's not a big deal because you put it in that box of HTFU. Okay? All right. Point illustrated. So, also, one of the areas in which new school cycling has slaughtered the annual rhythm is through Zwift and virtual reality racing. And there's a really important point to pick apart here, which is how we have this perception that modern day racers, the Vanderpools and the Van Arts, can race full gas all year round, and even superstars can race at Tour Down Under and win bike races, and then they go to the Tour and they're still racing and they're winning. And old school cycling was more of a, the champions, with a few exceptions, didn't really start racing until at, least at the earliest classic season. And then they would take a break, and then they would come back and train for the tour. And then they would take a little break and then come back and train for Worlds. So it was a very periodized season with intentional breaks. And now we have this model where supposedly everyone races full gas all year long. And I think there's some bullshit to this. I think it's not always true. And I also think there are exceptions because we have to accept that Van Aert and Vanderpool are the David Goggins and Jocko Willink of our sport. Even within the pro peloton, they are the point one of point one. So they are not examples to follow. And we also have to recognize that if you, a listener of my podcast, who is most likely a quote, normal human quote, although I would add super normal on top of that, because you're already point one compared to the population of the United States, because you do things like exercise regularly and you're listening to podcasts to further your own human development. And there are a lot of people who never go more than 50 miles from their place of birth, nor do they ever try to educate themselves about anything except how to eat the next donut. So slap yourself on the back for already being the elite, but also do not assume that you are in the same company or same category as Willink, Goggins, Vanner, or Vanderpool. You are not, nor am I. And so training like these people or trying to race like these people is a fool's errand. And you are going to hurt yourself. It will come at the cost of your long-term health and your short-term performance in the sport. Maybe not your really short-term because you might win a race in March. But then in August, when you are seeing stars because you did intervals on Swift and raced 12 months a year and you're completely hosed and your immune system is destroyed and your joints are inflamed, and you also are flat as hell in terms of form, and you're getting sick chronically, I already said that one, then you've learned a hard lesson. The last point on timing, I'm approaching my entry gate to the ski area here, so might have a brief interruption. It'll all flow. Then we can move past the annual rhythm to the supra-annual rhythm, the four-year cycle, the Olympic cycle, the 10-year cycle, the 50-year cycle, right? And what do we see? Hey, man. I'm trying to get to the Nordic areas. Is there any chance I can go straight, or do I have swing to go? By, okay. Swim by up, up this way. Okay. Thanks. 
cool, cool, cool. Uh, I'm going to pause here and I will resume with more thoughts on the super anal rhythm after this. Part two to come. Hello there, boys and girls. Ladies and gentlemen, Space Monkeys, Crazy Diamonds, we are back for part two of this podcast. I'll probably be published with one episode, it's not that long. I'm on the rollers, you probably noticed. Sorry for the noise. Hopefully, it's not too outrageous. So I want to continue my discussion on timing. Timing is everything. And return to the center of the circle. And there are a few key points I want to highlight as we take one more lap through the sphere, our three-dimensional sphere from our center point. The first is pretty simple. The center point is the place at which we make good decisions. By good, I mean not morally just, although those can be included in good. I'm talking about something bigger than that. I'm talking about decisions that are in right relationship with your life goals, your dream goal and objective. That can be in the sport of cycling or outside the sport of cycling. So when you're in alignment with those goals, then you have cohesion, you have confluence, right? I think I need to replace the bearings in your rollers. These Kreitler rollers that I'm riding are probably, they probably came to birth in uh, 1992 or something. Really, really old. Pulling up well overall though. So, the idea of being in the center point, if we look at a concept like Qigong or Tai Chi, these practices are about centering yourself. That is to say, you remain constant while other people are reactive, while the world moves around you, while stressful events happen, avalanches, earthquakes, economic crises, cats barking on your couch, flat tires, crashes, hailstorms. Uh, doesn't all have to be doom and gloom. The events can also include falling in love, having a child, getting married, buying a house, winning the lottery, finding $100 on the ground, um, getting a new set of arrow wheels, winning a bike race, right? So if you're not centered, if you're not practicing being in your center point and remaining grounded within the center of your own sphere, that is your own sense of knowing, your own sense of inner truth, and something happens in your life that elicits a strong emotional response, whether that's a health crisis or winning a bike race, it can knock you off course, right? It can knock you away from your authentic path. So example, someone starts to have a lot of success early in their cycling career. I'm thinking of a particular rider when I use this example, I won't name him because that's not appropriate. But he, if memory serves, he had a very successful career winning a medal at a junior world championship in a particular discipline. I won't name which one. And while superficially, 
someone who has never won a medal at a world championship or maybe even even maybe never competed at one might think, wow, you know, all the roads are paved with gold. You've got huge amounts of success going forward. You're going to have sponsors. You're going to have a lot of people believe in you. You're going to have good coaching. You're going to have good bike fitting, good mentors. You're going to have an agent. You're going to get contracts. And all that is going to further your success. But in this instance, the rider felt overwhelming pressure to meet the standard. And I think he became victim to his own prognostications or those prognostications of people around him. Right? The soothsayers who came into his life and said, wow, you won a medal at the age of 17 or 18 or whatever it was. You are so talented. You are so blessed. You're so lucky. I can hardly wait to see what you'll accomplish in the future. How many world titles and Olympic medals will you win? And the athlete felt an enormous weight of pressure as a result of all this forecasting. And as it turns out, that silver medal was arguably the best result he had in his entire career. So the trajectory isn't always set based on whether the fortune that happens in your life, the change, or the event, we'll say, is good or bad. It can be it can be really more about how you react to that event, whether you're knocked off center or whether you are able to maintain your course and stay within center, right? So the other point I want to make about the, the center point, the zero point of our sphere in terms of timing is that being in the center of your own active timing and universe is sort of, it's very parallel actually to the definition of posture. One of the definitions of posture that I've read is an optimal instantaneous axis of rotation. So if we think about the hip when you're pedaling, the hip extends has the crank descent through the power phase and then flexes as it comes up to the top of the stroke, to the top dead center. And during this act, we want the center of the femoral head to be properly placed in the hip socket. We don't want it to be distracted or um, misaligned in the, the labrum of the hip, right? We don't want it to be out of place. If it's pulled forward or pushed backwards in the hip socket, smashed one way or another, or if the external or internal hip rotators, for example, are twisting it at an angle that's not really aligned to produce the force we want it to produce or perform the function we want to perform when we pedal, then you might have tension in the ilium on that side, or the pelvis, we say, the hemisphere of the pelvis. And it might pull that pelvis into anterior rotation or posterior rotation or uh, all kinds of other fun things. You might do that on every pedal stroke if there's too much tension in the hip. And then you get what I call in the fifth studio hip drop. And then you come to me because your knee always hurts or your IT band always hurts or your back always hurts or feel twisted on the saddle. And I have to go spelunking and figure out what's up. So when we are in our center point, it is a parallel to being in the optimal posture and an instantaneous optimal axis of rotation 
guess I got that backwards. Optimal instantaneous axial rotation would be the better way to say that. Allows you to act from a center point in any direction, but also remain within the center point and not act, which is an action. I know this is super obtuse, but I really think this applies to cycling and life in particular, just like the saying goes, how you do one thing is how you do anything. So the question I would pose when we're talking about the center point is do you have a practice that brings you to center? And the common one right now might be meditation, the commonly recommended one or the, the one that's in vogue, right? Standing. Can you stand up while you ride the rollers? If not, try it. Just don't fall off. Or if you do, make sure there's a couch. And don't come looking for me if you fall off your rollers and hurt yourself. Don't hurt yourself. So, I think that's what I want to say about center point is that it is the place that keeps you grounded through the turbulent waters of life. And I would ask you, do you have a practice? And if you have a meditation practice, great. And if you don't, that's okay too. I'm not here to tell you to do that. I'm here to tell you that to be a human that will measure up to your potential, you need a practice that will center you whether that practice is meditation or walking or chanting or far infrared sauna with your eyes closed or staring at a candle for a half an hour or starlight or I don't know, there are other ways to find center. What that practice is, is up to you. One thing I will point out, and this, for those of you who had been to me for fitting, will know this. I ask in the questionnaire, the prefit questionnaire, do you have a meditation practice or grounding practice and frequently I get the answer I go for long solo rides okay cool so uh, I thought this way too once what I can tell you is solo riding is meditative but it is not meditation those are two different things and when you think that your long solo rides are meditative are meditation this is called a spiritual bypass. This is when you are not actually capable of sitting still, most likely. I don't know your particular situation, but I'll say that this is pretty common. If someone can't sit still, but they feel a lot better when they go for a long ride, what they're doing is putting a huge, giant, culturally approved, really expensive carbon fiber athletic band-aid on their problem. And that's great. Um, that might work for you your whole life. I don't know. But it might not. You might end up with serious health problems because emotions that are buried alive never die. And if we don't sit and stew and contemplate and feel, we're always band-aiding and running from or camouflaging or layering on top of, then... Uh, we are 
We're asking for it down the road. I'm telling you. Because I'm 50 and I've been through this about 8 million times myself. Okay. That's point one. The next point I want to stop at a minute as we expand from the center of our sphere. And minutes are important in cycling because they are so relative. What do I mean by that? You're probably wondering, how can this be? Minutes aren't relative. We know the exact definition of a second. Actually, right there in Boulder, Colorado, you have the National Bureau of Standards, which defines a second as some number of rotations of a hydrogen atom or something. I don't know. They have some obtuse physical definition where you figure out what a second is. I should probably know this because my dad was an actual geophysicist. But you don't. So what am I saying? I'm saying that movement is connected to perception and emotion, which is a concept that Joanne Averson talks a lot about in her podcast. And that means by definition that as we move, time is relative because emotions change our perception of reality. So what? What does that mean, Pierce? It means that there are times, had to drink some water there, there are times when a four-kilometer pursuit seems like eternity on the track. And that's about a four-and-a-half-minute event, plus or minus, depending on what velodrome you're at and how fast you are. There are the times where a 20-kilometer time trial seems like eternity or a 10K climb. And then there are other moments where a 40K time trial seems really long. And I've had many people ask me how in the hell I could do an hour record. Actually, one person asked me one time, you did an hour record? The first question I usually get is, how long did it take? What was your time? And then you just say one hour. And then they're like, oh, right. Um, what did I mean? And I have to explain to them. You meant how far did I go? Meaning what was my average speed? Because it was the same thing. They say, oh, right. And I tell them, uh, a little over the 50K an hour. And they're like, oh, wow. What does that mean? I don't know what kilometers are. And I say, that's about 31 miles an hour. And then they're like, oh. Okay. Then they start to get it. And so I was having a conversation with one guy at one point, many years ago, and he said, well, at what point did you know you could make it from there to the line with maximal effort and you stood up and you just went full out from there to the line? What point did you not hold back anymore? And I responded, the start. And that blew his mind. So here's the thing about our records. They are very long from a certain lens. If you're used to doing five-minute intervals or 10-minute intervals or even 15-minute thresholds, an hour is really long. It's about four times as long to be a bit of a smartass. But if, on the other hand, you do several 100-mile mountain bike races, which are basically time trials that are between 6 and 12 hours long, depending on the course, suddenly going hard for an hour flat out doesn't seem that bad. So timing is relative to the context of what you're trained for and what the perception of timing is in your most recent experience of training. Simple lesson. Train to be in the right perspective for your event duration. Pretty simple. Okay, moving a bit further out. Well, 
Actually, we're not moving out. We're still at minutes. But I want to make a second point here. And that is that timing is crucially important in bike racing. And this is a point that I think is kind of being lost, unfortunately, in modern racing. Why? Because because people are so focused on watts per kilo and power, they're not considering when they ought to use their strength in a race. And this is something that illustrates the difference largely between European culture and American culture. Americans, culturally, in the lens of cycling or in the, the multiverse of cycling, um, the terror dome of cycling, in that little little sphere, he, Americans are known for basically throwing roundhouses everywhere. That's what we do as a culture. That's all we can do. Our whole race philosophy is show up with a V12, assume everyone else has a V8, and just rip everyone's face off. And if you actually show up with a V12, like Lance did, and everyone else is driving a V10 or a V8, like pretty much everyone else was, that works out. But that's contingent on one thing, which is that you have the capacity and capability to build a V12 and that your competitors do not. Now, I think this is a dangerous philosophy. If you're an insanely talented athlete, it can work, but it doesn't always work. The best bet is to be able to do both. I am in favor of diversity of investment. That is, learn how to do everything well. So learn how to race your bike with some tactical savvy so that you have options, cards to play. I'm standing up again. And if you do that, then you're a multi-dimensional rider who can win races in different ways. And you're not limited to only ripping everyone's legs off. Because what do you do if the last 50K of the course are downhill, false flat headwind? Then you can be 30% stronger than the next rider and still not win. How are you going to win? So. What's the way to play this? Play less roundhouse and play more chess. So this means using your timing at the right moment. And this is one critical difference between Americans and Europeans also. Is that Americans, some Americans are confused. You are confused, Americans, if you're listening to this. Because you believe, somehow, that the strongest rider should win a bike race. And I would argue, as I so often do, uh, having so many unpopular opinions, that this is not the case. Bike races are amoral. It is the human social component that assigns morality to a bike race. A bike race is the fastest rider from A to B who paid an entry and pinned on a number and played by the rules. And the rules don't say that you have to pull. The rules don't say that the strongest rider wins. The rules do not say that if you sit on the brake for 40K and then wax everyone in the sprint, that you're a bad person. The rules don't say that. The results just show that you won if you did that. So here's the rule. If you're dumb enough to pull me the line, I'm smart enough to sit on and out sprint you. There's no dishonor in this. I've learned this lesson many years ago. Bike racing is as much about being crafty 
as it is being strong. Now, I'm not saying that someone should lie. Don't get all chest feathered up for me here yet. Listen to my story. Listen to my perspective. I'm not saying that somebody should get in the break and fake being dropped the whole time and barely hanging up for life and grovel and put on a big acting scene and then win the sprint. I'm not saying that's an honorable way to race. It's not. That's a shitty way to race. However, if you were in the break driving it and you let this person sit on for that long, it's as much on you as it is on them because you allowed yourself to get fooled. So, okay, let's rewind or zoom out. What am I getting at? I'm, what I'm saying is part of a critical skill of bike racing is to use your bullets at the right time in a race, the perfect magic moment. You watch 34 attacks go and all of them are useless. And then you sit there watching and then you jump on attack number 35. And that's the one that makes the break. This is Wu Wei, which is perfect action. No effort lost. Distilled, minimal, but effective. This is the goal of being on center. This is also the goal of using your minutes correctly. Okay. Next topic, seasonal timing. This gets into old school cycling versus new. The old school model was you took two months off. Then you rode two or three months of 39.17 on flats at 100 RPM. You didn't do any intensity on the bike. You built a base. You built supple muscle. You also made your body slowly conform to your bike, which was probably not adjusted correctly. And there was no consideration for proper posture. It was just, air quotes, how he sits on the bike, end air quotes, which is stupid. Posture is a thing. So that's old school. Oh, and you got your intensity in the gym. And then you started racing in February or March, but the first few races were training races. And the stars didn't come out until earliest classic season and then the tour, right? I think I said this in the part one. Sorry if I'm repeating myself. So this is really important, though, because now we have Zwift land where people are racing 12 months a year. And their season becomes flatlined. And everyone's afraid to lose their FTP as though it's like a Rolex you're going to drop in a dark closet. Your FTP is not a Rolex. Stop worrying about losing watts, especially in your threshold. There's like 54 indicators of who's going to win a bike race. And one of the heavier weighted ones is threshold, but it's one of 54. And it's equally weighted with like six other things. Maybe even not equally weighted, maybe a little bit worse than a couple of them. So, and one of those 54, if it's enough out of balance, can destroy the whole system and nothing else matters. Case in point, if you don't eat any food for 48 hours, zero, and then you go do a 100-mile road race, you can have by far the best FTP, VO2, race acumen, equipment, experience, and what? Coolest paint job of the entire peloton by 30%. And the chances of you winning are like almost zero because bike racing requires a lot of fuel. 
So if you've had zero calories for 48 hours, that will trump everything. See what I'm getting at? Like, you're like, yeah, that's a preposterous thought experiment. But it illustrates my point. There are many ways to suck as a bike racer. It's a sport of many pathways to suckage. That's right. I'm going to use Ron Burgundy voice for a minute. You can suck at bike racing. There are 54 ways to do this. And no backstory, I don't speak Spanish. So, modern cycling ought to be a hybrid of both old school and new school. That is all school. Where we don't completely let go of our intensity in November and December. And we don't take six or 10 or 12 weeks off. However, we do take a break, a proper break of at least two weeks where you intentionally let your body detrain and you do something else besides ride bikes. And if you want to stay active, like lift weights or go hike or whatever, ski or run, sure, knock yourself out. And if you're an exercise addict and you're desperately band-aiding yourself so you don't sit still and God forbid, think about your own thoughts or sit in the cauldron and feel your feelings, well, knock yourself out. And don't worry, those feelings aren't going anywhere. They'll still be there next time you look. So, this is my suggestion. Respect seasonal timing. In winter, do wintry things. Like this weekend was really, really cold here. And I went skiing and I went rucking. And I lifted weights. And that was plenty of exercise. Now, I'm not telling you to not ride whipped. But I will tell you that trainers are niggle magnifiers and they screw you up. We do a whole podcast on that because to be honest, I'm a little tired of talking about it. So why not do a podcast on it? Okay. Last point. Then I'll cut you free. Timing of your legacy. This is the end of the sphere. The very edge of the sphere. The sphere in this case represents everything you can imagine. And we can imagine ourselves past death. Maybe some of you have ideas about what happens to you past death. Some of you are desperately trying to trying to convince yourself you know what happens after death. Whatever model works for you, man. Uh, but I'll say this. In this lifetime, what do you want to have be your legacy? What does legacy mean? And if you're the type of person like me, who tends to take themselves way too seriously, as a default, you might be like, oh, legacy means I have to have a 100-foot-tall marble sculpture, and 10,000 people will come to my funeral and bow down at me and talk about how I taught them cycling. And that magnificent podcast he did on the rollers changed my life. Now we're talking about legacy, right? But look, man, that's just like your opinion. We got to get real and understand that most of us won't make a tower or build a jet or ship a human race off to of Mars. Elon, you nut job. Love you, man. You're crazy. Like, most of us won't do that. Okay, cool. Does that mean your legacy has no meaning? No. 
it's worth thinking about. What do you want to do? What are you going to think about on your deathbed? Are you going to lay there and think, shit, I didn't make it to inbox zero, man. This whole thing was for nothing. Probably not. You're probably going to be wondering if your spouse or children love you. Or really more that you know that they know you love them. And you might think back to the quality time you spent with friends. And think, did they know that I love them? Was I actually listening? Or was I just waiting for my chance to talk? And in the sport of cycling, do we have a legacy? Like, are people going to write on my tombstone? Not that I'm going to have one, but just play along with me. Winner of the Route 66 stage race in 2005. A champion of champions. Nope. Nobody gives a fuck. Nobody knows what the Route 66 stage race was except me and Kent Bostic and Clay Mosley. And that's fine. I'm not defining my legacy based on random three-day stage races in New Mexico. For me, legacy is about how I live my life day to day. I'm treating it as a process and a practice rather than an end goal. End goals were for the warrior phase. That was gone a long time ago. So that's a very superficial explanation, but the point of this section isn't for me to give an explanation of my legacy. It's to get you to think about yours and consider what you want to leave behind. And in that point, it brings you back to center because if you see that how you're spending your time isn't how you want to look back on your time, then that means you're off center. You're off course. If you're like, whoa, I spent two hours on Instagram yesterday surfing other people's shit. Hmm. Is that something you can be proud of on your deathbed? I don't know. I mean, if you're just looking at Pomeranian videos, probably not. Maybe if your work is on Instagram and you're moving people's lives, sure. It's a tool. Use it in the right way. That's what I'm saying. I'm not begging on Instagram, but they do steal all your data. Forever. So, forever is a good word to apply to timing. That's what I got on timing is everything. I hope that was, that was pretty out there. But it's just where I'm at. I hope I tied together some concepts that are useful for cycling and for you and your real world life. Oh, one last point on timing. Um, pedal quicker, man. If you're pedaling around and averaging 72 RPM, he said, shifting, then consider upping your cadence game. Just in general, not all the time. But trainers make you pedal slowly. It's a thing. That's what I got. Thanks for listening. If you think this episode sucked, you can literally go on my Instagram and write, that episode sucked. If you think it was amazing, you can write that too. Do you not feel anything? Then feel your feelings. Uh, that's what I have. Pedal consciously, friends. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for more episodes. And may the tailwind be at your back. Epilogue. 
I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings.